Good morning. It's a privilege to get to be with you all this morning, and it's fun to see friends of ours here. And we attend Covenant Presbyterian Church, and that's where I was on staff for about five years. Um, and then maybe three years ago, I left staff there to pursue full-time vocational um, counseling. So I work now in private practice as a therapist in Brentwood, and I enjoyed a lot. It was a uh, it was one of those things where you know, have, having done 10 plus years of ministry and realizing how much my favorite part of ministry was one-on-one discipleship with people and really sitting with people that were hurting and found my heart more and more drawn to doing that in, in the one-on-one setting of therapy. And I've loved it and learned a lot and been exposed a lot to my own inadequacies and how much I want to fix things and fix myself and people and literally have had to and Jesus has shown me a lot of how, how broken I am and how needy I am for him to just show up to do what He only he can do. So I love the work I get to do. Um, I'm grateful. And I was excited to come and share the word with you all because I don't get to do that as much anymore. So um, it's a privilege when Cullen asked me to come share. I was excited. So thank you for having me. Um, so praying about what to share with you all from God's word was fun. And I I was thinking about, okay, what comes after the resurrection? And there's so much, right? Everything that happens in the New Testament is all part of this. And um, I was thinking about the story, particularly with John, and John's, uh, from John, about Peter, and Peter's growth and development uh, of what's going on in his heart. How, basically, how Jesus, the risen Jesus, works in him. And to reflect, and this is what we're going to look at together, is just... Just as Jesus has worked and did work in Peter's heart, he's working in our hearts. And we're going to look at that and really slow down and see what he did in Peter and see how he's doing that same work in us. So we're going to read uh, John 21. It's up there, and I think it's on your green sheet. And I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll pray together. So after this... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, 
Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you that you gave us your word, and we don't have to guess who you are to us, that you tell us, and not just tell us, like you show us through your gospel, through these stories, through the disciples, and the way you've worked in all these years with all these, with all your people and all the saints, we ask that you would work in our hearts today. Show us what you would like us to see about you. And give us the courage to look at what you want to show us about ourselves. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So it was about three weeks ago. Um, and I don't know how bad you all got hit in this. Uh, there's some, uh, I guess we were so focused on our neighborhood. But I, we live in Creve Hall. And that storm that went through, was it bad for you all? Okay, good. We, I just knew we were flooded it was really bad. And um, we had multiple neighbors who's had, some had four feet of water in their basement, had to get rid of all their power, all their HVAC units. It was terrible. So we woke up Sunday, well, we were up, most of us were up Saturday night. Y'all probably were too, just watching the storm, seeing what was going to happen. So we got up early Sunday going, okay, let's go look at the basement. Because we were all here for 2010 for the big flood, and I was expecting to see water up here. I go down and look at my basement, and it was dry. I was like, this is amazing. Okay, we survived. And then I was thinking, okay, I hope you know this is the case for our other neighbors. And then we get a text from our neighbor, Chad, and Chad's like, okay, my basement's flooded. And then we get a text from Brock, and Brock's like, my basement's flooded. And then we get a text from Chris, and he's like, my basement's flooded. And everyone's like, all right, Sunday morning. I know what we're doing for worship. And so I had all this excitement, and I was excited to go and just love our neighbors, kind of just be with them and serve them and figure out how to get this water out of our basements. So I found a wet dry vac and went to our neighbor Chad's house and got to work. And we, we went at it. We had two wet dry vacs and we spent hours and hours. And anybody know what a wet dry vac does? So you just suck up water and it just sits in this bucket. And so we would shovel it off and then dump it. And we did this over and over and over. And I was just like, let's do it. We're going to get this done. And we worked for several hours getting the water out of his basement. And then we move on to Brock's house. Come in there, wet, dry vac. We can't get under there. 
and, and work for a little while longer. And then I would check in with Chad. I was like, Chad, how's your basement doing? He's like, well, it's flooded again. It's like, what? We just spent all this time, all this energy effort trying to clear out the basement and it's flooded again. And we check in with Chris and it just, everybody's basement, we would do, we had so much passion, right? To fix the house, to restore the house, to get it right. And passion was not enough to fix these problems. Our zeal was not enough. Finally, I called my neighbor. Um, he's actually my brother-in-law, and his name Taylor. And Taylor lived in a house where they had constant flooding. And so he has multiple industrial sub pumps. Taylor comes in, places the sub pump underneath the basement, and we just leave it there. And it just continually fixes the problem. And I was like, okay, I guess my zeal is not enough to really bring anything change in here, but we needed somebody to come in and actually do something long-term. And that right there is the story of the Christian life. And it's, Jesus, it's Peter's story too. Peter had so much zeal. You know, Peter was ready to chop off ears. He was ready to go to war. He was going to do whatever it takes for the kingdom. So much passion. And when it, when it came down to the true test of really changing and really being faithful, Peter drops the ball. He, there's not enough zeal in the world to really change his heart, and he gets exposed. And there's that scene early on, right in the beginning of the Passion Week, where Peter looks at Jesus, and Jesus is going to the trial under the Sanhedrin, and he's, he denies Jesus to a little girl and to two other strangers, saying he does not know them. And this was not for a lack of knowledge. (laughs) Jesus specifically told him, by the way, I know you say you love me, but you're going to deny me. He's like, no, not me. And he still did it. And this is our story. As much as we want to work to change our hearts, as much as we have enough passion and zeal to follow Christ, we can't do this. It's going to take the Spirit it's going to take Jesus, something, someone bigger than us, to come in and break through our pride, to break through our hearts, and to do transformation. How does that happen? Let's look at Peter's life and see how Jesus does that. And I want to offer this question to you all, and this is something I heard somebody share with me. He said, being a Christian is not what Jesus has done for you, but it's what has Jesus done to you? And that's a big difference. And so we want to ask, what has Jesus done to Peter and what is he doing to us? So we're going to just look at two points. The first thing Jesus does to Peter and he does to us is he exposes us. And the second thing he does is he embraces us. So the first thing exposes us. Let's look at that with Peter. So for Peter starts with this beginning of this miracle. And that's why I wanted to stick with this whole kind of story with this setup, because there's a lot in here and it's a long narrative, but you see it at the beginning here with Jesus. And he does this a lot. He shows up and he starts to expose Peter with a question that Peter does not have the answer to that forces Peter to look inside. Do y'all see it? Just as Peter was out there with the disciples, they were fishing. He says, children, do you have any fish? And of course they didn't. But he's asking Peter something, something important. He's asking him to go inside and look at his neediness, to look at himself. 
and to, and to really expose his need for Jesus. And Jesus does this throughout the Gospels to all the disciples. He does this in Matthew, and where the feeding of the 5,000, and he's actually really explicit about this. The disciples are like, they have these 5,000 people, right? And we actually know it's probably more than that because counting, it was like men plus women and children. So it was just numerous people. And he'd been preaching. And he says to the disciples, he says, how does he specifically say it? He says, where are we going to buy bread so that these people might eat? And he's looking at the disciples saying, where are we going to get bread, you guys? How are we going to feed these people? And then right after this, the gospel account says this. He said this to test them because he knew what he was going to do. Jesus was inviting the disciples to look at their incapability to change anything, to do anything in their deep need for Jesus. God does this all the time. This is the way he first interacts with Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, just ruined it for the, for the whole world forever. And God comes into the garden. The first thing he does to Adam and Eve is not give them a lecture, but again, he asks this invitation, this question to expose them. He says, where are you? This is the posture of God to sinners is not to come in to attack and to condemn. He does. His first step to begin to restore us is to ask us this question of how incapable we are, to show us how exposed we are, how needy we are of him, how much we cannot fix this problem without, without his work. There's no zeal enough to change anything. And this is what he's exposing in Peter. I want to show a little bit more specifically how he's doing this. And you see it in his first question to Peter there, sitting around the, the fire. He says, Simon, son of John, which interesting name choice here. He's referring to him as his first name. You know, he, he's already renamed him as, as Peter, right? But he refers to his old self, son of John. He says, do you love me more than these? Who are the these? Is he referring to the fish? Not really. Uh, he's referring to the disciples that are sitting around him. He's like, do you love me more than these people and these other men that are following him? And this, he is poking specifically at Peter's pride. Peter's already been, been thinking about this. Peter's already comparing himself all the time to the other disciples. You see this earlier. He says that in Matthew 26, he says, tonight, you all will fall away on account of me and be scattered. And Peter replies, oh, though they may all fall away, but I will never fall away. <laughs> he keeps doing this. And even, interestingly, Peter's still trying to figure this out, which is so us, right? He still didn't get it. Even in this next chapter, Peter looks around at the other disciples and, and asks the question of, okay, so is everybody else going to have the same fate as me? You know, He's still struggling to compare himself, and he's tr constantly measuring himself and who he is based off the people around him. And he's so intent at seeing himself as able and capable of doing it all right. And so Jesus is poking. He's exposing Peter's pride. And pride is, and this is a great C.S. Lewis quote, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, 
the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And what he's getting at is what he's trying to expose here is pride is about comparison. Pride is about seeing ourselves as better. And he, he wants to expose that in Peter because he knows if, when he exposes this, he's going he's gonna to meet Jesus. That's why he does that. And he's doing that in us, right? Like there's nothing that grows in the dark. You can't have a plant that'll grow in the dark. You can't have any wounds that are going to get healed unless you bring it to the light. That is what he's after. That's what he's after in us. He wants to expose us, and this doesn't feel very good. Let's be real. I do not want to be exposed. And it usually feels pretty painful. Um, I was thinking about you all as a church and transition and where you guys are, and I was reminded of when I was on staff at Covenant, and Jesus exposed me and all of us. I don't know how much y'all know about Covenant Prez's story and what's happened there. We had about about five years ago a massive church split. I mean, several hundred people leaving the church. It literally came down to a vote of 50 people to whether the church was going to stay where it was or not. And it was, that's like how close it was. And it was crazy. And so after that huge church split, I mean, even split among the staff, there was, I started on staff there. There was nine pastors. It went down to three of us and um, it was wild. And so the staff split, people left. And so afterwards we were like, all right, Lord, what are you trying to expose in us? And what he began to expose in all of us is, what we had focused on, which was our own kingdom and what we were trying to build. And I learned this about myself when I went to a conference in there, it was a youth conference and they were talking about um, what is your ministry smell like, which is an interesting word. And uh, the pastor was saying, you know, do you really love Jesus? Does, if people walk into your church and into your community, does it smell like Christ? What does it feel like, smell like when people are in your church? And I had to ask myself that question because everything had been exposed. I was like, I don't know now. And what the Lord was revealing in me is how much really what I felt like I loved was less Jesus and more about wanting to make people happy, wanting to make a place where we had great events, great activities. People wanted to come to be a place where, you know, it felt exciting to be there rather than for them to really know Jesus. And that was super convicting. And it, and it trickled out amongst our session. Everybody was convicted. We spent a long time looking at this. And I remember the session and being in a session meeting when we said, you know, we, somebody named it for us. You know, we have worked, we have functioned as a session as a group of board members and CEOs rather than as shepherds. And that was really convicting. Our leadership had become about just trying to, Make care, take care of business, build a new building. Literally, we were thinking about that, which we already have a great building, which is crazy. Um, I remember this getting shoved in my face when I was working on the new membership class and I was looking through the old material. And on the front of the new membership material was this huge picture of our building and how much we loved the building for the first couple pages. I was like, oh no, we have missed it. And Jesus used that exposing of our leadership in our church to really show us what was important which was him. So I have to ask, 
when you feel like we're, you're getting exposed and when I'm getting exposed, are you willing to slow down and ask Jesus, what is he trying to expose in you? What is he trying to show you? And instead of it being the thing that you think it is, right? Like the big thing that you, that big sin that we know you're not supposed to struggle with, whatever it is, whether it's greed or contempt or pride or lust, I want to invite you to think about what he might be exposing you, which is similar to what he is exposing in Peter, which is the thing that Peter loved the most about himself. What Peter loved about himself was his capability, was that he got it, that he was willing to love Jesus, his zeal. And what Jesus may be exposing in you is the thing you love the most about yourself, the thing you trust the most. When everything hits the fan, what you go, well, at least I have this. At least I can do this. That's the thing he wants to rip from us so that we see him. It's the thing that you mourn over. The thing that you, when other people don't do it, you roll your eyes. It's the thing when... When we don't do it ourselves, we continue to replay the conversation in our head or meditate on and think about or beat ourselves up over. That's the thing that we've begun to trust rather than Christ for our security, for our value, rather than him and our need for him. So he's exposing this in Peter. And so how does Peter respond to this? Well, He doesn't do a lot because this is who Jesus is. Jesus just pokes and opens and splits and chases. That's who he is. And what Peter does is Peter just sits down for breakfast, right? He responds to the invitation. And that's the way Jesus is calling to us to be open to his exposing of us, just to sit down with him, to create the space, whether it's in your car, whether it's in the prayer time that you're going to spend, or whether it's over a cup of coffee, looking out the window. Make space for him to show up, to expose you, to show you what he wants to take from you so that you see him more and his grace more. And as the therapist person that thinks about feelings a lot, feelings are the thing that are meant to show us about our hearts. They're not bad. They're meant to tell us about what, what is going on inside. So if we're willing to listen to what we feel, we really find what we trust. So fear can be a a door into looking at what are the idols in my life? What are the things I'm trusting in rather than Christ? So take time to sit and connect and journal about what you're feeling. And this is a great quote from Henry Nouwen that I think nails this. Where you are most human, most yourself, weakest, it is there that Jesus lives. Bringing your fearful self home is bringing Jesus home. That's where we're going to find him. And when we do that, confessing that to our family, to the brothers and sisters. Peter's exposure here was not just by himself one-on-one. This was in front of the family. This was in front of the disciples. And this is why James 5 talks about confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. Our sin, our shame, our brokenness doesn't get healed in the closets. It gets healed in the light. And so we need, once we start to see these things, we need to not just take it with us and Jesus. We need to tell people, tell the, tell the family, say, hey, I'm struggling to pray for me in this. I need to share this with you. Whatever that 5% is about what Jesus is showing up and exposing, go and share it to those you trust. 
And when he does this, when Jesus exposes this, it's not to shame us, but it's to invite us to see his faithfulness and his embrace. And that's the second point. Watch what he does with Peter. He embraces him. I love this part because uh, lots of reasons, but put on my therapy person hat for a minute. One of the things I've learned the most in sitting with people that are hurting is I cannot give enough information to change anybody. As much as I give somebody truth, it will not fix anything. It's great. You know, it's true. But what changes us is not facts. What changes us is, is relationship and experience. And that's what Jesus creates for Peter here. Look at this long setup. Okay, this is wild. There's so much going on here that Jesus is creating an experience for change of love for Peter. This miracle that he performs for Peter and the fishing was the first time that he met Peter. This is like, uh, like with your spouse when you go, hey, I want to tell you how much I love you. Let's go to where we had our first date. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Jesus does here. He sets up this whole miracle to remind Peter of who he is, right? This was the first time Jesus and Peter met was when he was fishing and he cast his nets after a day of fishing and found nothing and he finds Jesus there giving him a load of fish. It's the same setup. And then it gets even more cool. He sets up a fire and, and I was trying not to, I don't want to read into texts, but it's in here. The John talks about the last time that Peter was around a fire was when Peter denied Jesus to his face. And it really was to his face because it says in Mark that when the rooster crows, Jesus looks and sees Peter eye to eye. The last time Jesus and Peter sat in front of a fire, Peter was denying him. And here we are back around, in specific detail in the text, a charcoal fire. That is where the last time Peter denied Jesus. And he sets it up again to meet Peter in his shame. He wants to show him, I know all about it. There's nothing you can hide from me. I know all about your shame. And he does this because he wants Peter to know that he gets it. I mean, even the fact that he asks him three times, do you love me, right? What's he, he's obviously referring to the three times that Peter denied Jesus. He wants Peter to see that he knows all about his sin and he loves him. How do you get that he loves him? Because honestly, when I first read this, let's be real, you think it's almost like him hyping, like piling on the shame a little bit. You know, at least that's how my shame reads this text initially is like, you know, like almost rubbing it in, like, come on, you know, like, don't you see that he loved you three times? We have to really see what he does here at the end to really get this and put ourselves in Peter's shoes. So Peter, imagine this. If you're Peter, you haven't sat with Jesus in a while, and here you are, and you know he knows. I mean, he knows what you did, that you lied to him and denied him. He might be thinking, you know, Jesus, I'm going to sit down with Jesus. He's going to say, okay, all right, Peter, you can go home now and do the best you can as an active Christian. You can, you're certainly one of my children, and I do not reject you. You know, but of course, I can never use you in a place of leadership again. You have failed, right? And Jesus would have been totally right to say something like that, right? He would have been in his right. 
But instead, Jesus does something really different. He actually gives him more responsibility. Before he calls them, he called Peter to go and just catch fish. Now he's calling them to not just catch fish, but to go and tend to them and to teach them and shepherd them. He's called them to more responsibility. He's saying, I love you, I forgive you, and I want to give you the role of shepherding my sheep. Come on into my family. Come lead my sheep. He names the specific things and he speaks to it. And this is what Peter needs, right? He's getting ready to call Peter to go die, like be crucified. He needs Peter to know how loved and embraced he is. And this is the prerequisite for for ministry. This is the prerequisite for us to go and share the gospel. It's not our moral perfection. It's not how much we know about Jesus. It's not um, in our passion. That's not what we need in order to go and follow him. All we need is a heart that's surrendered to him and open to him and his grace that knows that nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. And that's what he's inviting Jesus or Peter to. Martin Luther says it well. He says, the, the sweetness of the gospel lies mostly in the pronouns. As, me, my, I, Christ Jesus, my Lord. So I want to ask you, do you, do you know the gospel? Is it something that has happened to you? Where you've met this sweet love of Jesus who knows everything about you, everything you will do, have done, could do, knows your heart, he knows your deepest thoughts, Nothing ever surprises him. He knows all about it. And that's why he came. Because he said, I want you. I want to give myself for you. I want to die for your sins so that I can come and bring you into my sheep, into my flock. Because you're mine. We love because he first loved us. And we can know Christ's love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And it's the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. That is the gospel. It is belonging before becoming. And we have to get that order right. And that's what he wants us to know. And when we know this, when we know this kind of grace and love, it will ground us to take risks. For Peter, that's what he needed to go and and lead the church and to call sinners to repentance. I love in uh, Keller's book on marriage, he says it like this, to be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. That's what the gospel does when we've been exposed by him and meet his embrace just by surrendering to it, we will be fortified for the work he's called us to. And where this gets difficult is we tend to not think that this is who God is. We tend to make, uh, Pascal, the philosopher says it like this, we tend to, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. And what we tend to do is we tend to think God treats us like we treat other people. You know, 
I'm impatient. I'm, in, I'm narrow-minded. I'm, you know, I, I'm very judgmental. Like I can tell you what you're doing wrong, probably not going to look at mine. And so what we tend to do is we tend to think God treats us the same way. We tend to make him in our own image, and that is not who he is. And that's what Peter, that is the shift that you see in Peter's life here. And you see it in his response to Jesus. And he says it in the first response, when, when Jesus first asks him, you know, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know, you know everything. You know that I love you. And, the, and I hope I can convey this clear to y'all. The shift is really small in here, but you have to see it. Peter now understands himself from the eyes of Jesus rather than from his own perspective. Because he's beginning to see, like, Jesus, you know everything. I don't, you know, you know whether I love you or not. I don't know this. Like, old Peter would have been like, yes, I love you. Now you know that, right? Like, he's just, he just is, it's like this posture of like, well, you know everything. Like, how can I hide? It's that Psalm 139 that it says, like, um, lead me in the way everlasting. You know, show me, open my heart, whatever it is, show it to me. He's got this posture where his sense of confidence is not in his knowledge of himself and how he sees himself. His Peter's sense of security and confidence is how Jesus sees him. So what this means for us, and practically, is we have to begin to confess to God and to ourselves how Jesus really sees us. To begin to say, hey, I'm a child of the king. So when we think about ourselves, not first as what we have failed at, but first as the one who is loved. I mean, that's how John introduces himself through this whole gospel account as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He, his identity is in being loved. Are you willing to own that? Are you willing to see yourself as that? It's leaning not on our own understanding, but trusting how he sees it. And this is why Paul prays in Ephesians that we would understand the height, the width, and the depth of Christ's love for us. And that's my prayer for myself, for all of us, as we think about this, is that we will begin to be willing to have the courage to see our neediness, our brokenness, and also the, the willingness to surrender our view of ourselves and to accept Jesus' view of us as the ones he has loved and given himself for. So now we're going we're gonna to move into the time of uh, the Lord's Supper. And this is what I enjoy about this process is, Jesus knows how forgetful we are. He knows how much we forget who we are. And so he's given us not just information again, he's given us an experience of his love for us. And that's what we're going to take together as we come to this table. And this table is not for people who have it all figured out, not for Christians who um, had a good week, but this is for, for you. If you're looking to Christ for your grace and for your hope, This table is for you to come and nurture your faith, to see the bread broken and given that is Jesus's body for you and to see his blood poured out as forgiveness for your sins. And as we eat this bread and take the cup to remember that who we are 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 as, as people who are united to Christ, just as that bread and the blood come into our bodies, we are united to him. And that's our foremost identity. So I invite you to do that if if you're looking to Jesus. And if this is not who you are, I'm going to invite you to just sit back and and reflect on 
the one who loved you and gave himself for you, who has called you to come and rest in his grace and love and to give up the exhaustion of trying to figure all this out and do it right. And, and if this is not who you are, I want to invite you to talk about it. Don't hold it in. Um, come and t- find me afterwards. Come and talk to your elders. Ask questions because this is a safe place to ask questions and this is a safe place to, to struggle because this is who we are. We are. What qualifies us to come to this table is not people who have it together, but it's knowing our need for Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to let Aaron come up and he's going to explain instruction on how we're going to take the supper. Father, thank you uh, for your grace. And we cannot get it unless you do that work in us. So would you, by by faith, by your spirit, nourish our hearts through this sacrament that you set apart for us, Lord, speak to our hearts, show us and nourish our faith. And we pray this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen.